Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello there, friends, and welcome to a very special episode of Off the Beat. I am your host, Brian Baumgartner. Today, we're going to take a little trip. A trip to a place that I like to call Memory Lane. Believe it or not, I have now been podcasting for over three years, and it all started out with me talking to some of my old coworkers on The Office. The actors, directors, makeup artists, camera operators, anyone I could find, basically, to help me understand what made that show so special. Well, the first line of attack in that specialness was, of course, the writers. So today, I wanted to highlight some of the brilliant, hilarious minds who shaped the stories and crafted the jokes that, well, that you love. I'm calling this my WGA episode. Seems fitting at this point in time. Am I right? Uh, But you can think of this as a, a best of some of my favorite snippets from my conversations with some of my favorite people on the planet. Whether you're a longtime listener to the podcast or this is your first time hearing these, I I hope that you'll enjoy uh, these stories about the inner workings of the writer's room and the magical place that was and still is the office. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. 
Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning Left over from the night before Let's start it off with this clip from my conversation with Gene Stupnitsky talking about how he and his writing partner, Lee Eisenberg, got to be in that room in the first place. So one of the things that separated Lee and I from everyone, everyone, like a lot of those, a lot of the staff went to Harvard. Mm-hmm. They were all kind of like, it was almost ex- their birthright to, to write sitcoms. Okay. You know, I was from Chicago, Lee was from Boston, and I had just five years of just nothing. I was, like I said, like just getting fired a lot. I was terrible at everything. So not a good assistant, not a good PA, <laughs> just a huge fuck up, really just a history of failure in many ways. So there was no, like, we didn't expect anything. We weren't, didn't feel like we should be there, but yes, we got, I think we were I was like maybe 26 or 27. Yeah. Started. What do you think? you and Lee, both of you, what do you think your greatest contribution to the show was? Or how do you feel like you helped? Oh, wow. What are you most proud of? Yeah. You know, there are certain jokes that I'm really proud of that I remember writing that feeling you get when you just, you're like, this is, this is, this feels like it could be really good. So I had those moments in my mind, I just remember writing certain jokes and they, they weren't, weren't even always for my episodes, but like, they're just jokes that I, I'm pr- proud of. It feels so weird. This is when the Im- imposter syndrome really kicks in when you start talking about <laughs> stuff like this. But I think maybe we kind of subverted, I think we like, you know, we did things like when Jim kind of became like not the greatest partner ever. He's like, Oh, I gotta go. I gotta leave. I gotta go. The house is on fire or flood. And you know, trying to leave Pam, like it would really piss off a certain segment of the audience but just things like that i don't know we i think we probably wrote kind of everyone had their own like i feel like mike sure wrote like michael at his almost most noble in a way like the best version of michael version personally i like a lot and like everyone had like a different version but i think we probably wrote like the most the most i guess british version of the show in a way okay maybe some of the darker stuff well, that that was sort of where I was going. I mean, the two episodes that you guys were responsible for, Scott's Tots and Dinner Party, unquestionably considered the most cringiest of episodes in the history of the show. Were those your ideas or did you execute them? And what I mean by that, for those of you listening who don't know, sometimes there are stories that are decided collectively in the writer's room and then you're assigned a script to write. I'm, I'm curious about sort of the genesis for either one or both of those episodes. Yeah. So, yeah, it's true. Some like writers will come in with ideas after we'll have like time off in between seasons. We'll come in with new ideas. And the ideas you come in, come in with aren't always the ones that you end up writing. Sometimes other writers write right. them and you write other writers' ideas. Um, neither one was our idea. Uh, okay. Uh, dinner party <laughs> might have been Greg's idea. I don't actually remember okay. whose idea idea that was but i remember feeling very i knew how to write that episode and i remember greg assigned it to mindy who like wasn't that ex- she's like, i don't i didn't think she really she wants to write a different episode i think at the time it was called like uh, who's afraid of jan levinson gould yeah but uh scott's tots was a paul lieberstein original that we were assigned okay yeah um you make your acting debut in the office correct on television uh, on television yes yes on, on television yes Leo and Gino, yeah. the delivery guys. 
Was this something you were excited about doing? No. Or was this just fun for the writers? I did not enjoy it at all. And it was really the other writers <laughs> kind of, I think Greg thought it was funny. And the other writers like thought it would be funny to force us to act. I hated it. Didn't want to do it. Fought against it. But if we were going to do it, we did. Lee and I did think it was funny for him to play Gino and me to play Leah, which was just really confused yeah. some of the people working on the show. Didn't <laughs> yeah. know what our names was, what our names were anyway. At the beginning, <laughs> and then by the end, we're really confused. And sometimes, people, if I felt someone didn't, so like if I knew someone wasn't sure if I was Lee or Gene, and Lee would walk by, be like, "Hey, Gene," to Lee, I would call him Gene, which would just doubly <laughs> confuse them. And they think they finally have to have it figured out, and then I would just. Yeah. Continue confusing. That's so good. I mean, look, the show the show gave all of us so much. I mean, for you, your first job in a writer's room, your acting career on television, whether you liked it or not, your directorial debut. When you look back on that time, what feelings do you have? I mean, I owe so much. It was my film school. You know, I owe so much to the show. It because you know, easily you can easily get on a show that lasts six episodes, and then you get on another show. And it kind of, you know, gets canceled or it's, I mean, we got so lucky being hired on the show to be on a show that went as long as it did. And we didn't stay the whole time, but it changed our lives. Met a lot of amazing people. We learned so much. Uh, We learned how to become showrunners and how to write and how to run a room. And kind of one of the things in the writer's strike that that we talk about is just, and I know uh, Mike's gone on record talking about this, just true. It's like, you know, for the next generation, you know, we learned from Greg, how to, how to do these things. And a lot, a lot of people aren't, aren't learning that anymore. Um, mm. But we, it just it ch- completely changed our lives, c- changed the trajectory of our careers. I remember thinking before I became a professional writer, I thought, oh, these writers, are, they're so lucky. They're so lucky that they get to do this. And then when I became one, and I was like, it's all talent. Luck has nothing to do with it. I'm just that talented. <laughs> and now I realize I'm back to the luck part. I mean, it's, there's talent for sure. But there's so much luck involved. There's just things you can't control that we got on the show, that it went as long as it did, that we met these, made these connections and met these people. It just, it's, you know, things are just out of our hands. And I feel, I feel so lucky. I feel so lucky. Well, I think we were all pretty lucky to be there, Gene. However, Lee remembers their early days on the staff as a, as a little less nostalgic. In fact, I think neurotic is a better word for it. Here's Lee Eisenberg. We'd never been in a writer's room before, so we didn't know anything. And so in a writer's room, if you pitch a joke and people don't like it, they don't tell you they don't like it. It's just you're met with silence, and then you extrapolate the silence to mean move on. But we didn't know that, so we thought that maybe like people couldn't hear. And so like I remember Gene (laughs) saying to Paul once, like, "Did you hear what I said?" And then like stuff like that would happen a lot. And then I pitch, I, I I pitch something. And because then, you thought they were being rude. Well, I didn't. Yeah, didn't I was just respond. like, well, it's just not the way that people interact with each other. You don't, you acknowledge someone. You say like, oh, I'm not sure that's right for me. But like, if you did, you know, you're generating thousands of jokes a day. Like if you did right. every single joke and explain why it's not right, you wouldn't oh, get anything done. That's funny, Lee. I don't think it works for this moment. <laughs> right. Should we think of an, yeah, no right. one does that. Lee, right. Keep going. Right. It was just weird. And we didn't know what we were doing. And then um, everyone would go out to lunch together. They would all kind of like run to their cars and like five people would pile into a car. And then Gene and I would like get into like our Camry. It just, we felt like we were the new kids and we didn't fit in. And so I think our contract was like 20 weeks. It was 10 weeks with an option for another 10 weeks or something like that. And we were 10, we were getting close to 10 weeks and we were, we were nervous, but we also kind of felt like 
no one's that nice to us. I think we're going to get fired anyways. Can we, can we quit? And, uh, and we called our agent and we said, we, uh, he's like, Hey, so you're, you're almost up. You know, you're going to, you know, we're going to try getting you those other 10 weeks. We said, well, what if we want to quit? And he said, well, I don't understand what you're asking. <laughs> and we said, well, like, you know, people aren't that nice to us. Like we're fourth graders at the new school. And he was like, this is the stupidest question anyone's ever asked me. And he just, it was Mark Provazero who represented me and sure. Gene and Mindy and BJ. And he was like, dumbest question I've ever been asked. And he hung up on us. Right. And then we stayed on the show <laughs> for five more years. Were you close to being fired, do you think? Or do you, was that just your perception? Because people well, didn't seem nice. I think that when you say people didn't seem nice, I really feel young. I think that the, um, you know, when you're acting and when you first start acting and you're like, the scene isn't about you. And you're like, you want to go up to the director and be like, hey, did you like what I was doing? Right. And you think the scene's about you, even though no one cares about you because the scene isn't about you. That's the way I felt about the writer's room was I was like, they're scrutinizing us every moment. And they weren't. Greg had 85,000 other things to worry about than the staff writer's happiness or our contributions. We were, we were contributing. But I think for us, it was like, Gene and I would drive back and forth. We lived together and we'd have like a 45 minute commute every day, each way. And all we would do is just say like, hey, Paul laughed a little bit at that joke I said in the small room. Really? Did, did, how did it go with Mike and Jen in the other room? Did BJ acknowledge you today? I mean, it was like we were parsing out the smallest little things. And then Greg got pneumonia oh. season two okay. while we were breaking the fight. So we had to outline the fight. Everyone else got to outline the episodes kind of more as a group. And for us, it was like me and Gene and Paul and everyone else was off on script. And then we had to go meet Greg at his house because he had walking pneumonia. And it was like, oh, they're setting us up to fail. They gave us this episode that's like right. goofy and different from the rest of the show. There's like a fight in a dojo. Like they don't want us to do well. And then when we hand in a bad script, they'll fire us. This is what we were convinced of. I think right. we didn't, I think we didn't feel confident that we weren't going to be fired until three years in. I'm not kidding. Every single time, like when we wrote the secret, we were like, they gave us the secret because there's not a lot of time. And then we won't deliver and then they'll fire us. That's how we went through the first few years. What? Wait, we, we liked everyone eventually, but we were terrified. It wasn't like a culture of fear. It was just two insecure guys who you shared You were just an worried about yourself. Oh, we were terrified. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm really sorry to hear that. Thanks. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. You're a bit neurotic, <laughs> but. But I've monetized the neuroses. That's all that matters. Yeah. Well, sure, I'm glad that they didn't quit or get fired because without them, we wouldn't have had such delectable masterpieces of cringe as Scott's Tots or even Dinner Party. In fact, every writer contributed their own special element to the show, but I, I wasn't there, at least not for that part. So I'm going to let Mose Schrute, I mean Mike Sure, tell you all about it. So Lee talked about this. I was talking to him about if there were specific strengths because the episodes were different mm -hmm. and were there th ways that either interested people or they were better at. And what he said was that he felt like he and Gene were much more in the sort of cringe comedy. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Which, you know, if you look at dinner party, that certainly fits that bill. And what they, they said about you was that you were much more optimistic. Do you feel like that's true? Yeah, I do. Um, I feel like my sweet spot on the show was 
Well, Christmas party is pretty optimistic episode. But like the episode branch closing that I wrote, I loved that story because Jan walks in on the first page of the episode and says, we're shutting your branch down. And it, Michael has a complete collapse. And then he says, no, I'm not letting this happen. I'm, I'm going to do something about this. And he and Dwight head off and they go to David Wallace's house in Connecticut. And they're just like, I'm going to confront him and I'm going to make him see that this is not the right decision. It is utterly ineffectual. Wallace never shows up. <laughs> they just end right. up sitting there and are miserable and completely unbeknownst to them through a variety of other machinations, the branch ends up getting saved. But there's a scene in the end where Michael and Dwight are sitting in the car and that all hope is lost. And Michael says, okay, top three favorite moments ever at the office. And Dwight says like, you know, my first day when you sprayed me with the fire extinguisher and when yeah, I got sick and you came into the MRI, you know, I got a concussion or whatever. And then Dwight says, uh, what about you? What are your favorite moments? And Michael says, all of them, every single one. And then Dwight says, well, what about when Jan showed up and said the branch was closing? And Mickey's like, come on, man. But um, that I remember just thinking like this, and it, that scene wasn't in the outline. And I remember writing that scene and thinking like, that, that this is like I locked into that idea. And I think it's just because it was like a moment of humanity between the two of them where like the office is very meaningful. It's all Michael has. And him being able to just sort of express in a sincere and human way what he loved about the place, like that kind of thing, I really felt like that I, that was my jam. Um, but yeah, I mean, those guys, like Greg's theory was that writing staff should be like the X-Men where he's like, if you have all people who are the same and have the same like comedic power, you're going to have one awesome thing about the show. But if you have, if everybody has his or her own comedic power, then you get everything. And so, yeah, I think Lee and Gene were really into the like super, I mean, those guys are so funny. Like Scott's Tots was an episode they pitched very early on that Greg was like, we're never doing this. And then long after I left, I was watching him like, oh, I guess Greg gave in. Uh, but yeah, they love that. Jen Salata was, um, her superpower is just this incredible connection to Pam. Um, she's also hilarious, but like she was like the beating heart of the show, I would say. Not just through Pam, through all the characters, but like the episode where the bird dies and Michael has the funeral for the bird, that was Jen from beginning to end. And we kept like tinkering and tinkering and tinkering. And she eventually was like, I think I just understand this and I just want to write it. And we were like, great. And then it's amazing. And the part of it that she really locked into was Pam, Pam understanding what Michael was going through and giving the eulogy and trying to make Michael feel better by talking about this dead bird. It's a really complicated emotional moment, but Jen just like understood it at some fundamental level. And, you know, Paul was really into Michael's when Michael was at his absolute worst. Like Paul was super into the the w Michael's worst instincts. <laughs> right. Right. Um Mindy was Mindy's superpower was always um the super absurdist stuff. The really like crazy flights of fancy, you know, famously in the episode where Michael burns his foot on the George Foreman grill. Yes. When Michael burns his foot, I mean, again, every episode that everybody wrote was always rewritten a tremendous amount. But I will say that that first monologue Michael has where he's explaining to the camera how he burned his foot, I don't think we changed a word of it. Like Mindy turned in her script and that speech was in there and it was really long and it's really complicated and it has it's a crazy roller coaster and I don't think we changed a single word because she just like, she would lock into just the 
super absurdist stuff presented very straightforwardly. Like, yeah, I mean, everyone, everybody had something they were good at. That staff was incredible. They sure were. We'll be right back. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. One thing I heard from basically all of the writers was that Greg Daniels, our showrunner, producer, mastermind, fearless leader, whatever you want to call him, he had a lot of games or exercises or theories, as he called them, that he instilled in the writer's room and used to help shape the stories, characters, arc, the the whole world of The Office. I'm not a writer, but from what I learned, this is different from how your average sitcom writer's room is run. Our writer, Brent Forrester, had also worked with him years before on The Simpsons, 
and King of the Hill. So he knew Greg's ways very, very well. Here's Brent. Do you consider Greg a teacher? Oh, for sure. Yeah. He's a friend of mine forever now. And we were in the trenches at the Simpsons, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. every single day. So, you know, we're all buddies, but for sure, big time. He, uh, someone, someone told us this exercise that he had a, something that if you were having trouble breaking stories and he called it unlikely duos Mm. and there were note cards on the wall with Mm -hmm. all the characters names. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to pick two characters that Mm -hmm. you would not necessarily associate with each other together and then write a story on that. I think that's always a great method. Um, Early on, back on nurses for me, I asked one of the senior writers there, what makes a story? And the guy uh, called me into his office. His name was Bruce Ferber. He closed the blinds, shut the door, locked it. And he said, a story is usually about two people. And then he unlocked the door and made me leave. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds so commonplace, but it's actually the key. Right. Yeah, that's what's great is what's an unusual pairing. That's how I got my first Simpsons episode was I paired Homer versus Patty and Selma. It had never been done before, so I got an episode. Right. But for sure on any show, you know, what two characters have never been in a story together? Do that. Right. Oh, that's genius. It's the small attention to details. When you know the characters and how the characters would behave, Mm -hmm. you almost don't need anything more than this. Mm -hmm. I was told that during the testing of the show with the Jims and the Dwights, the direction from Greg to the actors was very simply, uh, Jim, bring Dwight a glass of water. Mm -hmm. Right. And then what happens, right? You know Dwight is going to be skeptical, right? Right. Because you know, you know, he is afraid that Jim has done something to the water. Yeah. And I felt like you guys did such a great job of of that, of studying the character's behavior and mm-hmm. how each character would behave in a given situation. No, you 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 hit it on the head. And if you notice, uh, ask Greg what his favorite television show is of all time. I remember he was being interviewed and he sat there for an hour trying to think, you know, and asking the writers what they thought. It was Larry Sanders. And uh, Judd Apatow, if you ask him, he'll give you the same answer. I worked with Judd on a show called Love we did for Netflix. I was the head writer there. And I remember we delivered scripts to Judd, the first four scripts. I thought they were good. They were real clever and funny. And he was so bummed. And as he tried to articulate what it was, he said, watch the Larry Sanders show. And by the end, we had a, a... phrase, a motto, and it was behavior over banter. I never forgot it, man. You know, you don't have to have clever wordplay if the characters are in an interesting behavior. Now, I can tell you two behaviors that are funny for actors. One is lying, always funny. <laughs> right. The other generally is seduction. Unless the person, I suppose, is really hot, it's going to be kind of funny. Right. So I wonder for you as a comic performer, you know, you're talking about the glass of water thing, which is complex behavior. Are there other categories of behavior that are funny for you to perform? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, for me, the biggest laughs that I ever remember was when Holly was told that Kevin was slow. (laughs) That's that, that was my recollection and people went sort of bonkers about it. And I think the reason why is because it was a very simple joke. Yeah that is set up by years of history and knowing the character. And as soon as you 
hear the setup of that, yeah. you know instantly that she will believe it <laughs> and that there will be confusion between her and Kevin that could play out as long as we wanted it to. I think that when you truly, when you have the time to create a character and there's an expectation from an audience on how that character would respond, yeah. the anticipation of that and delivering that or the opposite of what the expectation is, to me, those things are very funny. Wow, that's gold. Um, you at one point said this, it has been said by wiser artists than me that the more personal you make your writing, mm -hmm. the more personal it will become. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like you write personally? I aspire to, for sure. Our medium is very interesting because it's collaborative and I am hired to execute the vision of somebody above me. And, you know, I've come to think of the writer's room uh, as an art project. The, the showrunner is the artist of the show. That's the Picasso. And we're all there to sort of make his or her vision come to life. Having said that, when you get an individual episode, at a certain point, they send you off. And that's when the art form becomes yours. And you really try to pour yourself into it. So on The Office, I always did try to find what was personal about it for me in that right, episode. Yeah. Right. Another really unique thing about The Office was how fluid the dynamic was between the writing staff and the actors. Usually, this is not the case. The writers write a script and the actors act it. But on our show, not only were the lines of communication very open, but a lot of our writers were very much a part of the cast. Obviously, Mindy Kaling, B.J. Novak, and of course, Paul Lieberstein, who played Dunder Mifflin's beloved, behated, I don't know, is that a thing? Uh, controversial, let's say controversial, HR rep, Toby Flenderson. You said it's not traditional, and there's this huge wall typically between the writing staff yeah. and the actors. How do you think that that difference in our show changed the dynamic? It would have been, I don't think our show would have come out that way if there if. There was a strict wall. We were all on the same page with the show, writers and actors. And we became so close with each character and actor and liked them and liked writing for them. And that often doesn't happen when they're so separate. The writers have one idea what the show is that they want to create and the actors have a different. And so they're fighting each other on set. Just create without ever talking, they're fighting each other. Yeah. Right. So I, I think, yeah, it, it was such a, it was such a good thing to do. Often that wall is there because of the producers and the director. You know, the director typically, you know, you're not supposed to have any, this director supposed to be the only person talking to you about your performance. Right. And I get that. But at the same time, if you have a, uh, you know, the show goes for a little while. Actors know their roles better than their director. The writers know the characters better than the director. The DP knows the show better than the director. I mean, the director's coming in knowing the least about the show of anybody. And we're all supposed to, like, not make the show better and just wait for the director to catch up. It's just, it doesn't really work completely. Right. It's the, th it's the thing about TV. I mean, it's a great rule for a great rule for a movie. And I mean, you know, you can see like as a director too, and we all became directors, you know, that 
building someone's performance, you want to tell them just a couple of things. You can slowly try to push them in a direction and, you know, it matters how you say things. And I think we all generally respected that right. boundary while we were building a scene. But we all talked about the scenes beforehand and afterwards, what was going to come up, the stories. And when things weren't working, we just stopped and we just talked to each other. Yeah. I've taken that with me into the future. Like I, I always will show respect to a director, but I will walk over to Video Village and have a conversation with the writer or the creators on set just about the character or, or what we're going for. I feel like I'm able to have a conversation with them and get to the core of actually what it is what they're they looking. The intention. Yeah. 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 Which that a director is just more skilled at having that conversation. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've really, I'm really big at, uh, with intention now. I'm working on the Space Force with Greg now. So we were doing scenes with Steve and I tell him to say whatever he wants and just tell him the intention. Right. I mean, he's going to say whatever he wants anyway, but he doesn't <laughs> right. need me. <laughs> right. Um, did you feel like you had, because of your relationship with Greg, did you feel like you had a, a greater accountability to him when you started working? Like, did you feel? Yeah, big time. I think, you know, there's always this, this I, when two people are working together and related, there, there's, there's this sense of nepotism. You know, and I felt like I had more to prove and I wanted to, for both of our sakes, defend against that by just doing more and being better, you know. Right. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about the form of the show. We began over time to find elements that we felt like worked that was going to create, you know, the best half hour of television, meaning... You know, in Diversity Day, for example, like setting that episode in one day, you know, having you know having all episodes for one day, right? That most, most, yes, as a rule, as a rule, yeah, yeah. In which I think that's something we broke a handful of times in two hundred episodes. And why was that important? When we were talking about the concept of the show, a documentary crew had come there that day for some reason, and everything we shot was contained in like their intention and the i know at least the f the first few times we broke that rule it was because a story lingered to the next day so they followed it but it was our feeling that they weren't there every day catching everything whereas i think towards the end of the show we, we decided no maybe they just are there every day <laughs> i have never heard this before swear to god really i've never heard this before yeah, why why did they come? Because they came because uh, they knew um, this person was coming to talk to Michael about you know a problem they received you know the Larry Wilmore diversity or but there there was always that hook right why were they there even if it was never stated or so like oh today it's the Christmas party yeah exactly you can imagine some days where nothing happened and they just didn't come right I mean I love this so much. It makes total sense that the camera crew wasn't at this paper company five days a week forever. And that level of thought and detail in the world building of this thing, it just, it never ceases to amaze me. And as you've heard, so much of that was the brainchild of Greg Daniels, who 
I truly, I consider him a genius, mad genius, but a genius. He gave the show real values, a real heart. So here's the man himself telling me about one of his biggest principles on the show. A few people have talked to you about one of your core ideas, which is the idea of truth and beauty. Yeah. That was my thing with Randall. I would yeah. go, truth and beauty, truth and beauty. Yeah. And what did that, what did that mean to you? Um, well, you know, to me, that was, I, I, I think that's some romantic poet. I'm not sure where that came from. Okay. Somebody like John Keats or something. I don't know. And I don't even know what he meant by it, but the way I used to use it with Randall was that's what we're going for in the camera, right? Let the camera seek out truth. That's what it's trying to find. That's the point of a documentary. What's the truth? And also not like a cynical negative truth. Like also where, where's the beauty? It's like another principle of photography of like a good photograph is, you know, a little sprig of weed coming through the cracked concrete or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, where are you going to do something that's a little bit inspiring, but find it in a truthful way out in the real world? Right. Well, Mike sure talked about it and you told a story about, um, a parking lot, an endless parking lot with lines and parking spaces. And in one crack, there's a little flower, ah, a little dandelion. He that's, said that? That's, yeah. that's funny. I just made the same. Yeah. Yes. I think that, that, you know, I'm, I like the notion of aesthetic, like what are you searching for in art? And the Japanese have interesting aesthetics with a cracked pot. Did he mention that? No. I used to use that a lot. No. So I think it's called woo. I'm not sure. Okay. But it's the notion of a perfect pot is okay, you know, and we in the West probably value a perfect pot, but a cracked pot where the crack suddenly makes you feel the history of the pot and the people who've used it in their family and have treasured it and kept it even with the crack in it. Like it suddenly cracks through, you know, it suddenly will, will touch you. It's those little details often of imperfections. That's like a, a, it's just a cool sort of philosophy. Yes. Yeah. I have uh, this so far off topic, but a number of years ago, my parents were moving out of their house and I went for a week and I was like helping them and throwing out all of this trash. And we go into like the corner of the closet in a guest room that no one ever slept in. And in the closet, there was a big piece of paper that was folded up and I, I unfolded it and it was a Kennedy poster that my dad had like handed out or seen or collected or whatever. And I remember saying to him, can I have this? And he's like, yeah, it's like all torn or whatever. Yeah. And I took it and I framed it and I took it to this place and they were like, oh, we can, you know, do this or that. And I was like, no, 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 the crack has to stay there. Yeah. And the wrinkle, the folded marks, just as lightly as you can mat this on something yeah. and enclose it because I want that history of it. I don't know that idea. Yeah. Well, also like, I mean, you know, I don't get too psychological, but you know, when you think about your dad, right, you're... So the, the relationship that you have with your father, the fact how old that they are, and just the sense of like passage of time being important to that relationship and fragility of it and knowing that it may not be around forever. And that I can completely see why a tear in your dad's poster right. adds to the 
Right. The emotion of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Totally. <laughs> I love that so much. The imperfections really are what make the office so perfect. More after the break. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. So as you probably heard from the news or heard from this podcast, many of your favorite shows have been ground to a halt the last few months. The Writers Guild of America is deep in a strike. Now, back in 2007, when The Office was on the air, there was a major writer strike that lasted 99 days. Wow. Well, as of today, the current strike has reached 140 days without an end in sight. We're really in it now for the long haul. I love how Mike Shore talked about the last strike, which 
had a lot to do with the start of streaming and online videos and how those were paid or not paid for. And I'd like to share that with you now. Uh, the account's significant because um, I have an Emmy. You Congratulations. Have an actual Emmy, but you also won an Emmy. But we were never paid for it. Right. And it led to the writer's strike. <laughs> I watched a video of you yesterday. From when, from when we were on strike? When you were on strike. Yeah. You guys produced a video. Yeah. And you said a number of things in the video. Okay. I don't remember any of them, but. I saw it and I was like, oh my God. And then we were joking that you guys were coming up with bits as you were walking the picket line <laughs> and making the video kind of funny anyway. Um, but you said in part that you're watching this on the internet, a thing that pays us zero dollars. Right. They were put on NBC.com. And they sold ads, and we won a daytime Emmy and didn't make any money. The writer's strike was a really big deal. Yeah. I don't know. Just talk to me about that time and what you remember of Greg saying, no, we're not going to produce material for free. There, it was a very inspiring moment for me personally because the, the central issue at the time, this is 2007, the central issue at the time was jurisdiction over the internet because Netflix hadn't started making original shows yet, but people felt like they were going in that direction and NBC and every, every network had a website and they were starting to like stream in primitive fashion, the stream things on the uh, over the internet. And suddenly it was like, well, if this is the future, it didn't take a genius to think like, well, if this is the future, like who cares whether you it's a television screen you hang on your wall or sit on a platform or whether it's your computer screen, this is how people are consuming the work we do and we ought to get paid for that. So, so those webisodes were like a big part of that because I, I they were shot with union labor and no one got paid. So that was like the, uh, you know, it wasn't like because of those webisodes that the writers could want on strike. Those webisodes were an example of the kind of thing that we were trying, we were saying like, if this is the way things are going, we got to do something about this, right? So because the companies at the time were saying like, you know what, we don't have enough information. Let's just, let's just, let's just wait three years from now. We'll have more information and then we'll know what the future of this is. And we were like, no, you're, you're trying to, you're basically trying to grandfather in the internet as like a thing that you don't pay for. So, um, we went on strike and it was a, a huge deal and it was very scary. It was like unclear what was going on. The communication wasn't sublime. And Greg was like, well, we're going to pick at our own show. And the reason we're going to pick at our own show is, isn't a show of solidarity. Isn't a, say, a saying like, this is the thing we care about the most in the world. And we were in that little Chandler studios out in the middle of Van Nuys. Like yes. in the, it was not on a major studio lot. And so we all showed up to work at six in the morning and we picketed our own show. And we were in the middle of season four. We were about to shoot the dinner party episode, one of the most famous episodes of the show of all time. The best read through I think we ever had. Do you remember that yes. read through? That Amazing. read through was, was like, it was like a, a rock concert. And we had finished that script. That script was ready to go. And that script could have been shot. The actors could have just executed the script and the directors weren't on strike and the crew wasn't on strike. But Steve Carell said, um, no, I'm not. This is the way we make this show is collaborative. And there's writers on the set and there's producers on the set. And we change things and we work out new little moments and pitch new jokes. And I don't think I'm going to make the show without the writers. And he didn't show up. And so they shot a couple scenes from the episode that Michael Scott wasn't in. And then 
there was nothing else to do. And the show shut down. And that was such a heroic thing. He just stayed home. And he got calls from a lot of lawyers and a lot of studio executives from really, really powerful people saying, you have to do this. And he was like, no, don't <laughs> watch me. And Greg called him and uh, he was home and Greg was like, hey, I know that you've been had a lot of pressure coming at you. Are you okay? And he was like, yeah, I'm home. I'm playing with my kids and was totally unfazed by it and had the attitude of like, this is a collaborative effort. This is a thing that we do together. We don't do this. This isn't without writers on the set. We don't make the same show and I'm not going to make that show. Fire me basically was what he was saying. He called their bluff and the show shut down and writers were on strike for four months and then they gave up jurisdiction of the internet and we went back to work and then we made the dinner party, which is amazing. Right. And it, it was truly the story of what he did spread like wildfire. Um, he did not have to do that. There were very few people who were in the position that he was in, obviously, as the star of a very popular, successful, gigantic, monolithic hit show. But still, he didn't have to do that. He could have, no one would have been mad at him. He right. wasn't on, the actors well, were right. on strength. And I was, you know, I remember having a huge, long conversation with my representation saying like, I, how can I walk past them? How can I cross, how can I cross the line? And he said that they, you know, you have no choice. Yeah. You have to show up. And we knew that. And Ed, I remember Ed came out and was like, hey guys. And he hung out with us. And, he, and I remember Ed going, I'm really sorry, but I have, and we were like, no, 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 we get it. Your union is not on strike here. Like you're not, we get it. It's fine. No one's bad at you. Like no one had any animosity towards any of the actors because you were in breach of contract. If you didn't show up, right. Steve was in breach of contract. He just said, I don't care. Right. Fire me. And it's easier for the star of the show to do that right. than it is for anyone else. But um, the story spread like wildfire. And Mindy wrote a sign in Marker, um, uh, hung it on his trailer that said, like, Steve Carell, American Hero or something, and took a picture of it. And it spread very quickly around the town. And it was a real, like, wind uh, beneath the wings of the guild at the time. It's amazing. I mean, he, he you can't sort of overstate just what an amazing guy he is yeah, and person to work with. And I get a little choked up when I remember what an amazing leader he was during that time and always, but during the strike, especially. And I want to close out with one of my favorite tidbits I learned while collecting these stories about the office. The next clip really sums up the care that the writers took in every single decision. But I'm going to let the brilliant writer and later co-showrunner of the show, Jen Salata, tell you about this. Was there anything else that was specific or unique that you remember about this writing room? Uh, writer's room? It was the best writer's room I've ever been in. Uh, and I feel like it will be the best writer's room I'm ever in. I think the writers were exceptionally talented. And Greg was saying that everybody had their own super strengths. but. Everybody was good at story and comedy and uh, and emotion. I felt that certain people, yeah, were were, were gift, more gift you know, more gifted in certain areas. But I've worked on staffs where one person was story, one person was comedy. There was a little bit more like that, and I felt like this staff, everybody had the ability to do everything, and the fact that everybody cared so much. There was an enormous discussion, I don't know if anybody talked about it, between whether the proposal should have sound or no sound. 
There were people on both sides. It was about 50-50. It was the craziest discussion. It was whether or not when we saw Jim propose to Pam, we should have sound and hear what he's saying or just see the visual of him in the rain getting on one knee. And I found that that really explained the writer's room. Everybody cared so much. There was one moment where Greg was getting into his car, you know, after the discussion had gone on for a month and we were about to, you know, have to settle on it, where I was coming from a trailer and he was getting into his car and I said, Greg, and he like turned and he was like kind of trapped between his car door and his (laughs) car. And I was like, did you make, did you decide yet? It was sound or no sound? And he's like, no, no, I haven't, I haven't. It was literally like a horror film. (laughs) Like I was like, I was stalking him to find out if the decision had been made. Um, We argued passionately and it was just because everybody cared. And I think that um, a lot of it was just for the passion with which, the passion everybody had for telling the story. I can talk a little bit about the sound, no sound, if you want to hear it, but you might hear it from everybody else too. No, go ahead. Um, So that was actually a decision a little bit that I feel like came down to another discussion that we had a lot of times in the room, which was kind of being more documentary and a little bit more real and a little bit more subtle and being a little bit more like a comedy or a show. So uh, basically, the the side that wanted to hear Jim's words were like, you've been waiting forever to hear him propose to Pam. Why would you take that moment away from people and not hear his actual words? It's like they've been waiting for it. You want to give them what they've been waiting for, which might be slightly more of a comedy show kind of thing. With a documentary, mockumentary thing, it was a little bit more of like, God, it's so beautiful and subtle and to be across the street and to have to reach for it because he would turn his mic off in this moment. It's a big moment. And once you see him down on one knee, we know what he's saying. And then actually filling in the blank is more beautiful. We went back and forth about this for so long. At one point, um, Greg asked me to send in my pros and cons list of like sound and no sound. And then I remember I was in his office a little bit later. We didn't still hadn't made a decision. And I saw a list of people who wanted sound and a list of people who wanted no sound. And his wife and two kids was on one side of the list and two other kids or his wife and one kid was on one side of the list and two other kids. His family was split down the middle. So he was interviewing everybody and saying, what should we do? What should we do? Um, so there was a moment he was at the sound mix. We were, he had to make the decision. Like, this is the moment. And he's like, is there anybody we haven't asked? Is there there anybody we haven't asked? And I said, oh yeah, the security guard is there. You know, security guard whose name I can't quite remember. I'm sorry, but I go and I get the security guard and it occurs to me during my walk to the office that he's never seen the office. (laughs) Lovely, lovely man. Protected us all. Not an office fan. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, cool. So now we've just got a very objective person. So I show him the scene without sound. And then I show him the scene with sound. And I say, what did you prefer? And he said, I liked the second one. And I said, why? And he said, oh, because I could hear it. (laughs) Okay. Greg, he said he liked the second one because he could hear it. So that was it. Um, Anyway, that wasn't how the decision was made. But that was our last person weighing in. And then, you know, it ended up airing with sound. But um, but it was j- the debate about whether or not it should be sound or no sound was the writer's room to me. It was everybody incredibly passionate about something that we had worked towards. Um, and just we really cared.
Thanks for caring, Jen and Greg, Mike, Paul, Brent, Lee, Gene, and everyone who worked on and wrote on the show. These people mean so much to me, and I support what they are fighting for. I support what the actors, the Screen Actors Guild is fighting for, but I hope for the sake of everyone that we get back to work very soon. I'll be back next week with a new and, of course, exciting guest. Uh, Until then, please, everyone, keep the writers and the actors and all of the crew across the entertainment industry in your mind this week. And we'll see you next week. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Diego Tapia. Our producers are Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan Papa Zachary, and our intern is Ali Amir Sahin. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by the one and only Creed Brett. Friends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, our lost sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.